same. Uh, you now have a, a central bank digital currency on your wallet instead of the Alipay account that you had. Mm. So you can still do the same thing. For the end user, it doesn't change in terms of what else they could do. It just changes the way central banks are control uh, are uh, issuing their currency and how they are controlling their monetary policy. But it does give people in poor or remote parts of the world, unbanked people who have difficulty accessing the financial system, it makes it easier for them to do that, wouldn't it? Correct. So financial inclusion is one of the main themes for the DCEP. Um, as much as we think of China being a highly uh, having high penetration of internet, there's only about 850 million people who have internet connections in China, So, which leaves roughly 300 to 400 million people who don't have internet connection. So uh, you be the ability to uh, provide offline transaction as well and through mobile phones uh, is very useful for people to, tra uh, to transact, right? Um, places like India, for example, we have had uh, a significant growth in the number of bank accounts, but many people don't really use those bank accounts. Mm -hmm. So now having a mobile phone where you can actually use and make those payments uh, makes it easier for you for distribution of uh, government grants, uh, any other the uh, rebates that the government wants to give can be directly in in the phone uh, of the person. So do you see a time when there'll be more digital yuan in existence than paper banknotes? Is cash going the way of the dodo? Possibly, yes. Uh, probably in a decade's time. Uh, it could be accelerated sooner uh, if the adoption is fast and, and, and knowing mail in China, that's a possibility. Uh, with the caveat that uh, cash will still be around. Uh, I, I've seen over the last seven years uh, from my first time in Beijing where you know you could use cash without much difficulty to going two, three years ago where nobody was accepting cash. Mm -hmm. But then that's when the central government brought in the rule that everybody has to accept. Mm -hmm. And with the DCEP, uh, and everybody will have to also accept uh, the DCEP payment, right? Oh, so, okay. it's, so that makes it compulsory and improves financial inclusion. Mishira, thank you very much for coming in this morning. That's Mushir Ahmed, who's founder and managing director of FinStep Asia. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets in Australia. The SX200 is off 0. Points, uh, sorry, up 0.6%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan rising about a one and a quarter percent. Cosby also up in South Korea about 0.6%. And looks like the Hang Seng is going to add about 100 points at the open. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for Back Chat with Hugh Chiverton and Nixie Lamb in a moment. The weather forecast for today, fine, hot during the day. Maximum temperature of about 30 degrees. It's 23 degrees right now. 79% relative humidity. It's 8.32 and a half. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. President Biden has announced the United States has reached his administration's goal of delivering 200 million coronavirus vaccines in his first 100 days in office. He said the effort may have saved tens of thousands of lives. But Mr Biden said there was still a long way to go. He said some younger people weren't getting vaccinated because they couldn't afford to miss work. Now is the time for everyone over 16 years of age to get vaccinated. Unlike the target groups where we've made such great progress, the broad swath of American adults still remain largely unvaccinated. In a number of states, they weren't eligible for the vaccination until this week. Too many younger Americans may still think they don't need to get vaccinated. A black man has been shot dead by police in the U.S. state of North Carolina. An investigation has been opened into the killing of Andrew Brown. Local media said he'd been trying to flee in his car from police, acting on a warrant for his arrest. He died a day after a white policeman in Minneapolis was convicted of the murder of George Floyd. The Justice Department has announced a federal investigation into the city's police department. 
A car bomb has killed four people at a hotel in the Pakistani city of Quetta, where the Chinese ambassador has been staying. At least 11 others were hurt. Here's the BBC's Jill McGivering. Quetta's Serena Hotel is high-profile and high-security. The car, packed with explosives, blew up inside the car park, shattering nearby windows. It's unclear who planned the attack. Baluchistan, one of Pakistan's poorest provinces, is home to several armed groups, including Islamic extremists and separatists. The separatists were blamed for an attack two years ago on a hotel in Gwada, a port project funded by China. The separatists accused the government and China of exploiting Baluchistan's gas and mineral wealth and its strategic position, with little benefit to local people. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chewerton, your co-host today is Nixie Lam. Nixie, good morning to you. Good morning. We're talking today about housing in Hong Kong and stopping child abuse. The think tank, the Our Hong Kong Foundation, is urging the government to speed up the process, boosting land supply, saying that now is the defining moment to turn the tide of the city's woeful housing crisis. They estimate that an average of 15,000 private units will be available annually in the next five years. Uh, that's 28% less than the actual quantity in 2020. And Hong Kong's private market will see more small small flats in the next three years, accounting for more than 40% of new homes for sale. They say developers have more incentive to build small flats when housing prices stayed at a relatively high level. The report also forecasts 21,800 public housing units will be available annually in the coming four years, falling short of the government's long-term housing strategy by some 28%. The foundation is suggesting the government to expedite all major land supply initiatives, including new development uh, develop, uh, areas. Um, rezoning, topside development on railways and urban development and others while streamlining the current administrative procedures for land and housing development. Other analysts though expect the number of vacant homes in Hong Kong may surge to an 18-year high as families emigrate. Well, how real is the housing problem today? What exactly is the problem? Will Lantau tomorrow help? Is a crisis looming and if so, what are the solutions? Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email backchat at RTHK hk or call us on 233-88266 and after 9.15 we're going to be discussing the problem of child abuse in Hong Kong following the death of that five-year-old girl at the hands of her parents how can we ensure it won't happen again will for example banning corporal punishment make a difference uh, drop us a line bankchat at rthk.hk joining us now in our central studio uh, we have uh, Ryan Yip who's a head of land and housing research at the Our Hong Kong Foundation and Vera Yun lecturer in the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Hong Kong good morning to both of you. Thanks for, for, for joining us. Uh, Ryan, it may, maybe we'll start with you. So I think the sort of headlines um, in the press today have been about the, uh, the issue of the size of the flats. Um, so you expect the flats to be small or stay small, not the tiny ones, not the nano ones, but in general to stay small in, in, in Hong Kong. Why is that? What's, what's producing that? Right. Uh, let's talk about the figures first. We sort of projected that the uh, average uh, unit size of newly completed private housing units will drop to you know below 480 square feet by 2024, and that is uh, almost 30 uh, percent less than what was in 2010. And also, we see we will see more smaller units coming up. Uh, the percentage of Class A units, which is uh, units that is less than uh, 480 square feet, which is slightly more than three, car, you know, car parking space, will uh, 
occupy 40% of all of the newly completed private units uh, in the next four years. And we really believe uh, the major cause of that, first of all, is uh, the lack of land supply. We see a lot of uh, uh, small sites uh, coming up in recent years, and that is number one. And number two is uh, obviously uh, pricing has become increasingly unaffordable. So uh, the, the developers have to build smaller and smaller units such that uh, people can still afford to buy them. Is there anything you can do to stop that happening? I think uh, we, we really have to uh, ta- tackle it by the cause, right? Um, I think the most fundamental cause is really of the lack of the land supply. We, we saw a... Uh, both a quantity and the quality of new sites coming up is uh, becoming worse. And I think the most important thing is to, uh, for the government to speed up all of the new development, a- new development areas, or what we call the NDAs, because these NDAs will, uh, will, will sort of uh, produce a large amount of housing units but all of these NDAs, a lot of them will only be completed in you know, 2030 or after 2030. So we believe the government, the key of solving this issue is for the government to expedite you know, all these NDAs and have more housing units coming up in the you know, next 10 years. Um, I heard an argument about those nano flats. It's based on the, uh, the affordability of the people. So the um, developers actually build and design their houses, well, their flats, uh, based on the ability to purchase. Uh, can you comment on that? Right. I think uh, if we see the trend of nano flats, we, we see the number of nano flats actually uh, increasing in the past few years. Hmm. And that is obviously because of uh, the affordability issues, right? If you if, if the housing price is high, then the only thing for you to uh, only thing for only only thing for people to be able to buy the flats is you keep the size down, so you keep the lump sum down, so that people will be able to afford to buy them. And but luckily, we see the trend of land flats will actually uh, peaking out next years, and we believe. Um, uh, that would be largely attributed to the relaxation of the mortgage, uh, which is uh, uh, launched in, uh, which was relaxed in 2019, so that people would be able to buy slightly, you know, uh, slightly larger flats uh, because you don't you don't need to pay such a high amount of down payment, and so we, we believe that sort of help a little bit on you know this trend of you know land flats peaking out. Isn't there always kind of an incentive for the developers to do smaller flats? Don't they get a bigger profit margin if you can squeeze more flats into a given area? I think it's not. I, I, I think the I think the problem is really. Uh, I think there are two problems, right? The first one is uh, the sites, the, the the housing sites that we see now is becoming smaller and smaller, so that uh, they they have to build more pencil buildings. That's the first reason. The second one is um, you have to keep them uh, affordable, right? Because um, if, if, if the unit price is high, the only thing to keep them affordable is to have the size smaller so that the lump sum is smaller. 
Okay, sorry, on the sm why, is, why do you have to build smaller flats if it's a smaller site? I don't see that that follows. Uh, that's one of the policy based on uh, land search like many years ago that that's, that's a mixed plan on finding possible lands to build um, residentials. And one of the proposals is to find available flats anywhere that is okay to build residential. Can I answer that question? Yeah, sure. very even, yeah. yeah. <laughs> More professional. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, um, the government has a policy to reach a certain number of um, units that will be built um, in the future years. So when the land developers purchase the land, it specify on that contract that um, the number of units they have to build for some years and for some of the contract. So in order to meet that number, some of the units have to be like quite small so that they can have more but at the same time they also build uh, some of the large and medium unit because they actually have more market if you look at um the past data um the small unit have increased in supplies in the past few years so mm. the price has kind of stabilized but then for middle and large units they have increased in prices for some years because there's a demand to change from small units to you know, medium-sized unit for some families who have grown ups and who have earned more money become wealthier. So I think there are two ways the developers are thinking. They need some small units because there's demand in the market. It's easier for investors to trade because of the small lump sum. And then it's easier to give them mortgage and to for them to borrow money. So it's um, always quite welcoming for the market, but at the same time, they also cater for um, the middle-sized market. Um, so I think it's both ways. It depends on what the developer thinks. For the reason, um, residential sales unit in South Hong Kong Island, they actually have pretty large units. So it really mm. depends on the site and then what kind of target customers they have in mind. How does it relate to the site? I don't, I don't understand that. If you've got a small site, why can't you put big flats in it? I think they have both big and small in, in the same building. They just, you know, divide. Some, some of them are for smaller, some of them are for the larger size. And if you look at um, that residential building in Taiwan, you can see that the larger flags, they are gone more quickly than the smaller ones. Mm. So it really depends. Those iconic flats, like I think there's a trend that like in every single building, even though those in Mong Kok is like one pencil size. Well, not only iconic, they have like a duplex on the top and things like not that. Not only penthouse and uh, duplex, because mm. for the free flats, they are actually more welcoming by uh, mm. well welcomed by the buyers than you know one room like those or, family ones, right? Yeah, three rooms or two rooms are actually um, more you know more welcome. Mm. Yeah, more popular. Okay. We also saw this week that story from uh, Bloomberg um, saying that uh, they expect the number of vacant flats uh, to reach uh, an 18-year high. Uh, that's in, ahead of uh, anticipated uh, emigration from from uh, Hong Kong. Uh, and uh, we also saw the government was kind of going back, reconsidering maybe the vacancy tax. That's been on and off, but I think the latest thing is that they, they're, they're thinking of it uh, again. Does it does that play a part, uh, Vera Yun? First of all, is is that significant? Because so, some people say the the vacants, the number of vacant flats in Hong Kong is is just average, uh, makes no odds uh, really. Or or do you, is it significant? Is it likely to become more significant? I think the percentage of vacancy is pretty low in Hong Kong, mm -hmm. so that would not actually bring a lot of supply to the market. Um, but then for from the perspective of land developers, they are actually scared about this. They did a lot of lobbying, wanted to pull this down for a long time, as far as I know. So it actually would um, 
alter their cost of holding these um, property and they need to change strategy in order to minimize the risk. Um, but then it wouldn't help a lot because the overall supply is not that high anyway. So it does not contribute um, a large percentage of it. Ryan Ip, your thoughts on that? I think if I can supplement by more figures, um, currently the uh, vacancy rate of private housing in Hong Kong is around 3.8%, which is pretty low, both in terms of uh, historical trends and also if we compare it with other sub-markets. And if we see a, you know, normally a void market, uh, we have a sort of natural vacancy rate because people will move in, will move out, they will have this uh, furnishing, they will have like they will, renovations, you know, renovations so. to flat. So normally uh, for a uh, uh, usual market, the natural vacancy rate is 5%. So right now we are still lower than the uh, natural vacancy rate. And if uh, even though even if uh, the vacancy rate will start will 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 hit up a little bit, we don't think uh, that will be a a huge impact to the market, and that will not help uh, to solve our um, housing supply shortage. You know, one one uh, observation that we, we've often heard on this programme uh, is that uh, the uh, developers, uh, many of whom are represented, of course, as you know, in, the, in our Hong Kong Foundation, uh, uh, have huge land banks uh, in the uh, new territories, but they're not willing to pay the premium for a change of land use. If they were, and they were willing to, to pay for uh, infrastructure as well, because they expect the government to lay on roads and things like that, if they were willing to cut their margins a little bit, that, that would solve their housing problem in Hong Kong and the housing and the land supply problem in Hong Kong. The developers that uh, uh, run your that are your bosses are sitting on loads of land. Is that true? Uh, I think uh, if we take a step back and we took a we take a look at a bigger picture, I think the key of uh, developing new territories is really to have enough infrastructure because if you look at all of the key infrastructures that is connecting the new territories right now, you know, uh, be it highways or railways, they are all in full capacity. So uh, there's no way for you to put even more people into the new territories without uh, a major upgrade to all the uh, major transport infrastructure. And we are talking about major highways and major railways. We are not talking about you know small roads or, so, or something like that. And I think uh, that is the thing that the government has to do uh, to uh, put in more railways, to put in more highways, connecting to the new territories. And if they do so, uh, a lot more land in the new territories will have higher potential to develop. But we think the, I believe the uh, prerequisite is really to upgrade the infrastructure of new territories. Have you done any research regarding what, what sort of like like highways or trains is needed and, and where it should be situated? Right. Uh, if you look at, let's first, talk, let's first take a look at the railways. Um, if, you look, if you look at the figures again, um, the volume to capacity ratio of both the West Rail and also the East Rail has already exceeded 100% in the uh, more than peak hours, and uh, we believe um, we will, we will need another railway connecting, uh, especially new territory west, 
to the Hong Kong island. Mm. And I think for that part, the Nantau tomorrow would actually help because it would have strategic railway connecting the Nantau tomorrow to the New Territory West and also to the uh, uh, Hong Kong island. And for highways, um, if you look at the total highways and also the uh, Two Moon highways, Again, their volume to capacity ratio has already exceeded 100% during the morning peak hours. And again, uh, there, are, there are some highways that uh, the government is planning. For example, the uh, Route 11 and also... Where's that? Sorry. The Route 11. The yeah. Route 11 is, route, uh, is connecting, <laughs> sorry, it's connecting uh, from Yunnan all the way to Chengyi. And also with the Lantau tomorrow, you also connect it to the uh, Hong Kong island. And I think uh, this highway is really important for you to release the development potential of new territories. Mm. Very good. What do you think about this this point about the the, the land banks? There's a lot of land owned by developers uh, in the new territories. Uh, why can't we use it for building? Well, it's funny that you ask a question. Why the land developers are not willing to cut their profit? Why would they want to cut their profit? I mean, they are on their own company book. And then if it's profitable, they would have already done it. So it means it's not profitable on one hand. And that's why they are not doing it. If it's profitable, they would have already done it. The other thing is the regulatory cost is too high, which means it's very hard to change the land use. You have to go for town planning board and then all these reasons like environmental damages, infrastructure, transport, town planning issues. So all because of that, um, I think... Some of them, they try to submit those applications to the board, but they just do not get passed. And then there are not enough land in general um, in order to um, have the quantity to get through the town planning board so that they can reach the bargaining stage of like how, how much premium they could pay. So that is another issue. Um, so the way to solve it is to reduce the regulatory cost. But as Ryan said, if town planning is an issue, then maybe there isn't a lot of way to resolve the regulatory issue because the regulation supposedly is to improve the living standard of you know all these new towns built. So mm. how, how are you able to solve it? And even the industrial buildings in the centre of cities, um, they have problem of um, scatter ownership. And then they cannot you know, integrate them together and get get them passed through the town planning board to um, change the land use. And even if they could, you know, submit this application, the town planner would say that uh, it's already too crowded. There's not enough transportation network, and then that, and then it's too dense, blah blah. And then they couldn't get past it. So the the many reasons why these lands could not be developed. And there's also a question about like living standards. Well, people are saying that if you have controlled on the minimum size of the flats, then people could have a better environment. Uh, what's your comments on these? I think surely, um, I think our, live, uh, our per capita living space is low. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. Our per capita living space is 170 square feet. And that is uh, 60% lower than the figure in Singapore, which is 270 square feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the the crust of it is still you, you got to have enough land and housing supply because imagine if you don't have enough housing supply, you don't have enough units, and then you have a and then government coming out have a regulation saying that oh you have to you, you got to have a you know minimum uh, living space. Then the the result is just 
you have even small you have even fewer units right because you only have that amount of gd of gfa and then you have to build bigger units the result is you have a, a smaller number of units right so mm -hmm. i think um um having a a a a, a higher living space uh the prerequisite is you still have to enough you still have to have enough housing enough. units at the first place mm -hmm. because otherwise all these sayings will just be empty talks why the need constant need for for uh new flats to increase the the, the housing supply this is something that uh if you talk about the lantau tomorrow vision for example that you're talking about an enormous uh supply of, of flats there but we're talking about an expectation that the population will actually go down uh, in the next 50 years well i mean 50 years from now it'll be less than it is now that's from the statistics uh, uh department and that's setting aside the ex, the uh, well, young people being encouraged to to go to the Greater Bay Area from the government, and people of their own choosing, you know, probably emigrating as well. There's an expectation that that's going to happen uh, as well. Uh, extra forces driving down. You'd think the, the the population. So why do we need all these extra flats? Why I do we think, need right. let alone land out tomorrow? I think um, we can take we can look at it from two perspectives. Uh, one is a slightly more technical perspective is. Uh, although the population will come down uh, after 20, 30 something, but the number of households will still be coming up, I think. Uh, and, and, and what is important is the number of households. And the reason of that is uh, the average household size is coming down because people you know, a, 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 a birth, are giving birth to, to less children. People don't want to live with, with their parents, etc. But the house, the average household size is coming down, so that uh, the number of household will still be coming up. That's the that's point number one. Point number two is we will have a uh, aging populations, mm -hmm. and um, the requirement for uh, an aged person is different. The, the requirement for elderly is different from the requirement for a a younger person so it's so different you have a, you need to have a bigger flat because you have a bigger walkway for the uh, wheelchair to go through and then you have a you need to have a bigger bathroom to all to have all of all the handrail uh to install so you have you you will need to have different requirements for elderly so that's that's point number two and also you can look at it from a more uh visionary perspective you know what is our vision for Hong Kong? Do we want a more livable Hong Kong, right? Do we want all of us to have a bigger living space? Because let's take let's take what I said previously. The, the, the per capita living space right now is 170 square feet, and if we want our per capita living space to increase by 60 percent to catch up with the level of Singapore. Simple math, you need 60% more GFA. So I think it all comes down to what but, but is the our vision yeah, for I know, Hong Kong. I, I understand, that, but isn't the trouble that all the focus now is on the number of flats, that we're counting the number of flats that mm. have to be completed, and it's all to do with, with ticking off um, private units and, and public housing units, and this is what Virian was, was touching on there. Uh, not the size of it. If we wanted, if we focused on the size of the issue, we could simply make a, a minimum uh, requirement for a, for a flat size. Uh, we could do that. There are all kinds of ways that you can incentivise flats to get bigger if that was really 
really your goal? Of course, in the in the short to medium term, we have to uh, meet the target of housing supply in terms of units because uh, you know we we are really uh, we are really uh, in the shortage of units. But if you look at if you take our sites for you know slightly more longer period, you know twenty thirty years, we we need to set our vision right. You know, not only the numbers but also the quality, also important. So I think that that all depends on what kind of vision that you have for Hong Kong. If you're looking at a uh, longer horizon. Okay, a couple of uh, uh, comments uh, from listeners just before the news at uh, nine o'clock. Jay says the government and the housing authority should be held responsible for creating mental illness. They have known for at least twenty years that ten to twenty percent of the mental illness is caused by small rooms. Then we have this hidden scam of putting smaller flats at cheaper prices, making it look as if property has become cheaper, but you're in fact you're getting worse quality of life. Many of the planners in these housing blocks need sacking because their designs are not practical, and the government needs to stamp down on the property cartels for holding the prices high. And, of course, we know many of these blocks are made for China, especially as the government plans 8.5 million people in Hong Kong. Developers need to go back to designing flats for mummy, daddy, kids and grandparents. That comes uh, from uh, Jay. And uh, Anthony says, new housing units need to come with comprehensive urban planning. Poor planning will only result in another Tinshou Wai, the city of sadness, as no people would like to do their business there. A deadlock. We can see how Kai Tak is done. It has a good combination of public housing and private residents residences together with prime a offices housing government departments well-connected highways and mtr there is in and out business flows into the area all this cannot be done in the very patchy location of the new territory's grown land so land tower tomorrow is another kai tax site that create a new urban area where residents can find new jobs feeding themselves that's the last thing many property developers do not want to see that's from uh, anthony uh, we're going to break for the news now the weather fine hot temperatures up to about 30 degrees 24 degrees the latest relative humidity now at 77 percent positive for the coronavirus. The organization's director said she expected more cases to be reported in shelters where thousands of people have been living. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Nixie Lam and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking about land supply, housing uh, issues once again uh, in Hong Kong, something we've talked about for uh, many, many years, uh, but uh, not for a while, actually. So it's interesting to uh, kind of revisit. This is uh, inspired by a uh, report from the uh, Our Hong Kong Foundation. It's available uh, in English. It's a big report. It's worth checking out. Look, look at their uh, website. Uh, we're joined now by the head of land and housing research at the uh, foundation, Ryan Yip, and Vera Yen, who's a lecturer in the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of uh, Hong Kong. Later, we're going to be talking about uh, child abuse um, with a representative from two... Uh, uh, NGOs is following that uh, terrible case of the five-year-old who died at the hands of her parents. Um, what sort of measures can be put in place um, to help stop that happening uh, again? For example, banning corporal punishment. Um, if you want to chip in on any of these issues or anything that's uh, on your mind, uh, email bankchat at rthk.hk. We'll do our best to read out your messages, but we may have to edit for length. Or you can call us on 233-88266 and our Facebook page is Bankchat on RTHK Radio 3. Um, okay, some uh, emails. We've got some emails on various topics which we'll get to in between our uh, main topics uh, today. Um, GK says, on land supply i agree with the host very wise uh, if the population in 50 years is coming down there is no genuine need to develop
develop Lantau for more flats. The points said by the guests are irrelevant and not major reasons. Um, John says, I love how the developer are controlling the local government. They always did, even before 1997. It's amazing how the planning is done. Take Lohus Park. They've been developed it for the last 15 years. But beside the MTR extension, they never updated roads, causing right now a major traffic congestion in the area at any time. How can they be so short-sighted? Wan Chai Bypass is the same story. It could have been done during the first reclamation period, but no, they did it 10 years later with a huge additional cost. Now we're talking about Lantau tomorrow. It's time to have proper... Proper planners, not puppets. That is from uh, John. CW says, first step, you have to break this cosy relationship between developers and the government. The government is reliant on selling land at very high prices to maintain government income. They keep these high prices by restricting land supply. The poor Hong Kong public have to pay the ridiculous price for flats. Why did the government let the developers off the hook by cancelling penalties for hoarding flats? Lantau tomorrow is a pipe dream. Hong Kong needs more housing now, not in 2035. That is uh, from C. W. Thanks very much indeed. Backchatter.thk.hk. Um, just a question about public housing. Uh, I think uh, our Hong Kong Foundation is in support of selling uh, those public housing flats. Uh, so, so let the people own their public housing flats. And but and then a lot of people were arguing, well, those uh, public supplies that supposed to have people uh, build their career in it, and then they have enough money, then then they move on and purchase private housing instead. So since that we have limited supply of land, why why are you in support of that? We launched uh, the tenant purchase scheme, which, as you said, allow the sitting tenant in the public housing units to buy back their uh, own homes to become homeowners. And I think, first of all, uh, we think this is only a choice. We are given the choice for the tenants to buy their own homes. We are not forcing them to buy. This is uh, purely a yeah, voluntary but, a- right, action. Yeah, yeah, I think that the, the argument is that, well, for public housing, it's, it's, rent, it's based on rental. It's basically because we want them to have a, a less pressure when they live in public housing. And then once they have more money, once they saved up money, they can move on and, and purchase their own properties if they are like working hard enough and stuff and in the in the in the private market. So and then more people are, that is in need can move into public housing. So the the thing is that. And also on top of, of it, I think the current situation is that <clears throat> some of the um public housing property that you have private owners and then you have like uh public renters in in one single building and it causes quite a big of um management uh issues for those public housing that's like like a mix of sales and rental. Well, I think there are two questions here. Right? Yeah, one yeah. is the circulation problem, yes. and the second one is the management sure. problem of the mixed uh, tenant. I'll, I'll answer them one by one. Uh, first, the circulation problem. Well, well, what what you were saying is uh, what happens in the ideal world. Right? People mm. can save up, and then can they buy private housing units, and then they can give back their own units to to the, to the next people in line. But what is happened actually? And in the reality, it's not that case. You know, people uh, people won't be able to save enough to buy private housing units because that's too expensive. And also, uh, if you look at the number of uh, uh, PRH units being circulated back to the government each year, is really a very tiny portion of it. So uh, we think, well, if that is the case, why don't we just let people 
to buy back their own units to become homeowners if they so choose. Uh, that's the first one. Second one about the management issues of the mixed tenure. And let's again take a step back and think about it. We, all housing estates in Hong Kong are having mixed tenure, right? Tai Ku Sing has mixed tenure. You have homeowners and also you have renters in Tai Ku Sing. But no, it's different. For private housing, you, you already have an owner. And it is all owned by private owners, and then the right. private owners are in charge of like paying management fees or or, or like up, upgrades and and renovations and stuff. But when public housing, half of it were paid by the, for, for the renters. Like a lot of the management or fixing is actually done by the government. So so it's different. Well, that is the that is the key, right? Uh, the ho- the owners of all this rental housing is. The government. So the government is the major homeowners in all these mixed uh, uh, TPS estates. So why would we would have such so many management problems uh, back in the time? Is the government as the major owners? They haven't done their duties, right? They, they no, no. Ha- the management problem comes with the mixed ownership. Um, I, I think maybe you you didn't catch my point. Is that well? Normally, for those public housing, it's all done by the government. Then some of the uh, uh, of like apartments is actually sell to those like um, like like tenants become their own home and stuff. It costs quite a bit of management problems because of the mixed um, management, uh, like mixed ownership. Right. So, uh, so right. So that means they are on, they are owners and also tenants in the same estates, right? In the same housing and but. But 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 uh, but remember that uh, for those tenants, they for those units they have a owners as well. The owner is actually the government, right? The government own the units and then they rent then and then they lease out the units to the public housing tenants. So these rental units has a owner, which is the government. And why we have so much management problem in the past is actually the government, as the major owner, they have they didn't participate actively in the management of a lot of the tenant purchase uh, scheme estates. So um, if, the government, if the government would actually take a more active role in managing these uh, estates, I, I think the uh, management problem actually can be solved. It's actually an a administrative problem. Viria, <laughs> what do you think? Um, I think to um, say the problem more easily, for example, is if they want to renovate, refurbish the place, and then um, the tenant would like it to be done as soon as possible. But the owners would be like, oh, we don't want to pay, and then yeah. we need to negotiate, see whatever contractors, and then... Yeah, yeah, a cheaper yeah. price and stuff like that. That, that kind of problem. Um, I think for a government like Singapore, they don't have this problem mm. because they are draconian. Mm. I mean, they write the contract clearly mm. and then use your centralized power to threaten the owners. And then <laughs> things can be done. I mean, it punish. <laughs> but in Hong Kong, I think the housing authority, they really treat um, these tenants and owners like with more respect so that they could decide because they form a committee and decide on what to do. And then the government would just pay the share. Mm. So it's about whether the government is draconian enough or the the government could think of like selling the rest of all the like uh, tenant cases and convert them into ownership. So mm. incentivize them and encourage them. I think nowadays they try to sell those um, units um, on 
um, the green for market, and mm. you know if you're willing to move in, then you can you can just buy like it. To HOS, there's a ultimate solution. Else, if the bureaucracy is more like um, they want to be a good civil servant, not harassing anyone, then there's nothing <laughs> can be done. <laughs> Would you like to see the HOS extended? Do you think there's? You mean HOS? Yeah. Um, Would that well, help? It depends on the market, and it would help for the sandwich class because when house prices go up again, there would be someone in the middle that that are in need for the um, middle price um, um, new building, and they they may not find it very affordable to buy the new private housing, but then they already um, surpass the means test for public housing. So under the current institutions, it may be one of the good things. But the problem is, um, overall, we do not have enough supply for every single sort of housing. Is that the, is that the is that the heart of it? You you agree with Ryanip that that's it's really down to land supply. There's a kind of straight line between land supply and the kind of flat that we live in in that we live in in Hong Kong. I think so. There should be more supply in general. If you look at Paul Chen's budget, he has come up with a number that in the future five years, how many units will be provided? And that number already cannot really meet um, the future target. And then if you think about how he computes the number, he actually aggregate all the number of units that can be provided on the land list. The problem is the government cannot sell all his land in, in the same year. Some of the land, you know, they um, cannot meet the reserve price and then they just, you know, go back to the land list. So, so actually it's a, it's, it's a overestimation. <laughs> overestimation. <laughs> it's a dream. It's a, it's a, a creative accounting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lie. Okay. Uh, J-, J Average says, uh, but you don't do anything for the uh, in-betweeners, those that have a little bit too much to qualify for government property and a little bit too less for private properties. I guess that's the uh, that's the uh, HOS we were just uh, touching on there. And uh, Jim says, dear Jay, do you live in public housing in Hong Kong? I do and find accommodations more than adequate for a single non-handicapped American 80-year-old. That comes uh, from uh, Jim. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that. And thank you very much indeed to, to our guests this morning, uh, to uh, Vera Yun, lecturer in the Faculty of Business and Economics at the University of Hong Kong, and uh, Ryan Ip, head of land and housing research at the Our Hong Kong Foundation. As I say, that, uh, that uh, report is also uh, available uh, in English at the uh, Hong Kong Foundation uh, website as well. Uh, the time now is uh, 15 minutes past nine. Uh, let's just uh, go to some... Uh, uh, emails on uh, various topics that have uh, come in. Um, uh, first of all, relating to uh, earlier discussions, uh, Anthony S says, "Rest in peace, European Super League, uh, 2021 to 2021." Uh, seriously, this club should have toughened up and gone with a proposal. It doesn't matter if there are one, two, or five million fans protesting outside the stadium; they have no stake in our society. Money talks. And that's the reality. Also, 90-minute football matches are too long. They should reduce them to 90-second TikTok videos so young people would watch them. Football's not coming home and the best has yet to come. That's from uh, Anthony S. Thank you very much indeed for uh, for uh, that. Uh, David says, one of your listeners uh, yesterday proposed that Steve Vines be reinstated to his Thursday slot on Morning Brew. I support this proposal. He can still be a host on Backchat. The reason for his removal was that it was only his opinion 
opinion and did not have a balance, does not stand up to scrutiny. Ample airtime is given to the opinions of Holok San, Andrew Leung, Ronnie Tong, Regina Ip, Rita Fan, Maria Tam, Priscilla Leung and Alan Zeman. Leicester Hong Kong is now wholly devoted to pro-government views. It's imperative that there is a balance to these opinions. If RTHK is to retain any credibility, Steve Vines should be reinstated. That comes uh, from uh, David. We do try and get a balance uh, in our letter to Hong Kong. That's uh, what we strive to do. And uh, if we can't, we'll have to uh, consider other arrangements. Johnny says, uh, with the subject line, Biden comments ahead of Chauvin uh, jury decision. Uh, A few months ago, the People's Daily published a piece in which it slammed a Hong Kong court's decision to grant Jimmy Lai bail, commenting that insurgents like Lai needed to be punished. Not surprisingly, the Western media and the anti-China camp were highly critical of the People's Daily commentary, accusing Beijing of pressuring judges and jeopardising Hong Kong's rule of law. Fast forward to today, and it's interesting to see US President Joe Biden's comments ahead of last night's jury decision on the high-profile George Floyd murder case in which he said that the evidence was overwhelming and that he was praying the verdict is the right verdict that comes uh from uh johnny and uh mike is back who says the other answer to john nichols that's the virologist we had yesterday uh is the spike proteins in the vaccine do enhance your covid response the fear and discussion in the scientific field is at what cost it seems that the killer t-cells that your healthy immune system depends on to stop all invasions cancer being the biggest are feared to be greatly reduced as it was in the animal studies in the 1990s but at least now we are on topic thanks Hugh that comes from Mike we wanted to turn finally as I said uh, today to uh, the uh, implications and lessons learned following that uh, horrifying case of uh, child abuse uh, uh, leading to the death of a five-year-old girl Um, joining us now is Dr Patrick Chung who's the chairperson of Against Child Abuse and Carol Sito who's the CEO of the organization Save the children um a comment uh, from mary who says dear bank chad if the government departments and the loyal trash at ledgeco had expended a mere one percent of the time and resources currently being devoted to curtailing the rights of citizens and previously on maintaining the status quo and supporting vested interests on protecting our children from abuse long-delayed legislation would have been passed years ago and tragedies like the death of the five-year-old innocent could have been averted. That's from uh, Mary. Once again, I email backchat.rthk.hk. Dr Chung, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for for joining us. What do you think are the priorities uh, in legislative terms or social terms or or, or any way to stop this kind of thing happening again? Well, after after the death of the poor girl... um we have made a number of uh, recommendations uh, to the government in, in the form of a statement. Uh, number one, we urge the government to speed up the legislating the failure to protect offence, uh, which the Law Reform Commission has started working on it since 2006. It is quite a long time ago. And this failure to protect offence would impose criminal liabilities on those people who fail to take steps to protect a child from death or serious or serious harm as a result of an, an unlawful act or neglect. And, it, and the persons would need to owe a duty of care to the victim. The person was or ought to have been aware of the risk of serious harm to the victim. And the persons 
uh, failure to take steps to protect the victim from harm was so serious that the criminal penalty is warranted. So are, are you with me? Yes, yes, listening. Yeah, yeah. 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 And this, this is the number one point. Mm. And the number two is to establish a mechanism on the mandatory reporting of abuse. Now, 71 countries have enacted mandatory reporting laws, including Japan, Korea, Nepal, Philippines, Australia, Canada, USA, and many more. And thirdly, we like the government to seriously look into the banning of corporal punishment, including in the home, and because children learn to lead, uh, use violence from uh, learn from uh, such acts, uh, learn to use violence from such acts. And the United Nations Committee on the Convention of the Rights of the Child recommended in 2013 mandatory reporting for Hong Kong, but it has not happened. And currently, 62 countries have banned such a corporal punishment, the first country being Sweden in 1979, and recently in Nepal, 2018, Japan, 2020, and Republic of Korea, that's Korea 2021. So number four, the, uh, we have a child fatality review uh, established quite, for quite some time, and the role of this panel is to be extended for its recommendations to be enforceable. And prevention of child death from abuse is obviously important. And lastly, the number five, as child abuse may not result in death, but in serious harm. And currently, there's no mechanism on this uh, serious review, uh, child abuse review in Hong Kong, and we need one. So those are the five that we see uh, important areas that the government should seriously look into. Yeah. When it comes to the, 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 the duty of care, does that, how effective, uh, and even on the mandatory uh, reporting, uh, is that, how effective is legislation like that? How effective is kind of legislating people into caring? Well, um, you know, various departments have uh, different guidelines, you know, uh, for its uh, staff how to, as to how to handle uh, suspected child abuse cases. But the reporting is often uh, voluntary. And uh, staff training and how familiar they are with such guidelines is, uh, is, 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 not, is not guaranteed. And, uh, you know... Um, do you, uh, but do you think, yeah, but given that, do you think that training and awareness uh, is better than forcing people by law in this way and, and threatening them with sanctions and so on? No, it's, it's, it's the reward. It's the reverse. That is... Uh, the, the main point in this uh, tragic case is that uh, there are gaps in the, in, in the uh, child abuse handling procedure whereby people are not mandated to report on suspected abuses. So that's why we need to have such a uh, uh, legislation you know, to safeguard the uh, well-being of the children. Mm. Well yeah, and what about those? Uh, I mean, if it's visible to the to the teachers and stuff, they they can see those like um, like bruises and stuff that they can report. So, but what if some of the uh, the parents they choose to like um, bypass those and try to uh, punish the, the child uh, under their, their their clothes and stuff like that? Then it, it's it's still like quite a big loophole that it's, it's impossible to identify those poor childs. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
physical injuries are quite uh, apparent, but the psychological harm cannot easily be uh, be, uh, be be seen. That's why training is important for the frontline staff to recognize signs and symptoms of abuse. And it is all this uh, uh, so on behavioral or behavioral problems. Yeah, mm. good problems they may present with behavioral problems, hostility, etc. They may be involved in fights. Or mood problems, they are sad, they are quiet, they may have uh, self-harm behavior or, you know, uh, hurting themselves. All these uh, symptoms and signs of, uh, uh, of abuse that the frontline workers should be familiar with. Okay, also with us is Carol Sita, CEO of Save the Children. Sita, good morning to you. Good morning. I think many of your suggestions are, the, are, are kind of the same as those that we've been hearing from Dr. Chung, is that right? Yes, for us, uh, um, uh, we also advocate for a mandatory reporting system for all the professionals that regularly interact with children, and uh, this is really key. As Dr. Chung has mentioned, that a number of uh, um, countries in the world have uh, implemented that, so there's no reason why Hong Kong cannot do that. Hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, and what about the, the corporal punishment? Um, uh, the scene, I know, my impression is that there's a trend away from corporal punishment uh, in Hong Kong. It used to be much more common um, than, than it is now. Uh, again, d- does legislation really make a difference or is it something kind of a broader and something kind of more to do with the social attitude? It does. Legislation definitely makes a difference. I mean, child abuse is, is not acceptable, so we do urge the government to put forward a comprehensive law to prohibit all corporate uh, punishment and other kinds of you know, cruel or degrading punishment of children in all settings, and also abolish this defense of reasonable chastisement and set a legal framework and a legislation timeline as soon as possible. Um, in Hong Kong, corporal punishment is prohibited in places like schools and alternative care centers, but it remains unregulated in home settings. So as seen from the various court cases, Hong Kong still adopts this common law defense of reasonable chastisement as a defense. So this situation must be changed. Uh, some parents will say, you know, uh, uh, this has nothing to do with child abuse. I just want to be able to, uh, you know, look after my children and, uh, in, you know, look after my children and help them grow in the way that I think is best without hurting them. That's uh, and why. maybe smacking them sometimes would would, would be part of that. <laughs> Especially that, like, like Chinese traditions. <laughs> because the law reform will play an important role to change this cultural norm. Mm. In Hong Kong, yes, it's almost accepted that, oh, you know, a little bit of spanking and you know, shouting is susceptible. But they don't realize the, the impact that that will bring to the physical and mental health of the abused child. Um, so uh, parents need to understand and we need to str- send a strong signal that physical punishment is a form of violence and that's not parenting. And what about those verbal uh, abuses? I mean, like you s- I see some reports about like they don't, they don't punch up the kids, but then, then they're constantly using crazy words like towards the kids and, and, and that kind of thing. Like how can we prevent that? I mean, when we talk about child abuse, which yeah. is a recurring concern in Hong Kong, and I was looking at the statistics, and it's gone up like 75% in the last two decades. Yeah. Uh, and yes, the most common form of abuse is, is physical abuse, and then followed by sexual abuse, neglect, and also psychological abuse. Yeah. And even the cases that are reported to the social welfare departments are probably completely underreported. Mm. Because like you said, the psychological abuse 
sometimes you know people don't uh, you know parents might not think it's a problem um, and and children also think it's 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 the norm you know in many mm. families to do that um, so that's not acceptable and and there are really uh, many many impacts uh, that you know will you know this will inflict on the child what about parent education I, 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 the government does a little bit of uh, parent education I think there are question marks over how effective it is and, and the way it's done. Yeah, <laughs> what, what, um, you know, what what do you think is the scope for for um, better uh, parent education? Yes, absolutely. It's a tricky thing to do, I think. To be honest, it is. It is uh, for NGOs like ourselves and also uh, against child abuse. We we both have positive parenting uh, sessions and educational sessions, and that's very important. So. You know, for me, uh, child abuse, you know, protecting the child is everybody's responsibility. It's not just the government. So we collectively have to play that role. So, for example, you know, Safety Children, we have this program on positive parenting to, to better that uh, parent-child relationships and make sure the children also know how to detect risks and how, you know, what does it mean to be safe so that they can grow up safely and in a nonviolent environment. Mm. Uh, Dr. Chung, do you think that parent education makes a difference? I mean, or do you tend to just kind of preach to the choir that the people who uh, would would take part in these kind of sessions would be good parents anyway? They'd be aware of their kind of responsibilities and so on. And, uh, and the, the parents, like in this particular case, they were not the sort of parents who would be going to taking advantage of this education anyway. I, I really, I think the prevention of abuse takes on the, the whole spectrum, you know, we need to approach it from different angles. The, uh, the parent education is uh, what we call a primary prevention of uh, child abuse, whereby the whole society, the children, parents, they get educated. And then we have the secondary prevention for the at-risk group, groups like single parents, young parents, or parents who use uh, substance abuse. Right, and then we have a tertiary uh, prevention, like uh, we look after uh, and give therapy to the uh, abusers, you know, to help them to uh, adopt different ways to bring up their children in a positive manner. So, uh, parent education has a very important role, yeah, for for the whole society. Yes, we uh, we, we need to continue our work with that. And we, we, we also run a home visitation program to support the new parents. And um, yeah, so, so we need to uh, involve the whole society yeah, to have a unanimous view as to how children should be raised in, the, in, uh, in Hong Kong. All right, just a couple, couple of comments uh, on Facebook. TC says, in the case of the child abuse, while the actions of her parents and step-parent is reprehensible, I'm also saddened by how the adults in her school failed her. Apparently the principal and the teachers in the deceased school didn't think the problem needs to be reported. Why isn't the Secretary of Education decertifying these educators? Isn't that more important than how the opium war is taught? That's from uh, TC. Uh, and uh, GK says the teacher and social worker should also be jailed for their ignorance. They might have turned a blind eye to the victim. Uh, who knows? Uh, and um, DJ says, uh, if your child is young and is given a small slap, it should install discipline, provided it's done at an age when the children forget. But kindergarten should be on top of this to check the children. That comes uh, from uh, Jay. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, to our guests this morning, to uh, Carol Sito, uh, CEO of Save the Children, and Dr Patrick Chern, Chairperson of Against Child uh, Abuse. Uh, Jay Average says, yep, bring Steve Vines back. 
And on the first topic today, TC says, uh, why is the government encouraging young people to develop their professional careers in the Greater Bay Area, uh, as well as Flavor of the Day, Hainan, uh, yet allow mainlanders to permanently relocate to Hong Kong and the rationale of family, reunific- uh, family unification? If family is this important to people, they're free to do so back in their place of origin. Why does it have to be in Hong Kong? I also subscribe to the view that a majority of Hong Kong's problems, including those seeming non-political, are based on land supply. For example, some people become hostile to their family because they're forced to live in small flats. That's from uh, TC. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, Nick C, thank you very much indeed. Here's the weather. Fine, hot during the day. Temperatures up to about 30 degrees. The outlook hot during the day, mainly fine in the next couple of days. And then a few showers around early next week. 24 degrees at the moment. Relative humidity is at 76%. I am the little grape and I'm here to alert citizens to scams. When you shop online, stay alert to scams. When you date online, stay alert to scams. And when you receive calls from unknown numbers, stay alert to scams. I never get tired of reminding. I love reminding my family and people around me to stay alert to scams. Ending deception starts with you. Remind those around you. If you come across any suspected scams, call the police anti-scam helpline at one 934 The News Now with Samantha Butler. President Biden has announced the United States has reached his administration's goal of delivering 200 million coronavirus vaccines in his first 100 days in office. He said the effort may have saved tens of thousands of lives. Russian police are reported to have arrested almost 1,500 supporters of the jailed opposition activist Alexei Navalny on a day of protests across the country. The demonstrators had demanded Mr Navalny, who's been on hunger strike for three weeks, be released or given access to better medical care. And a car bomb has killed four people at a hotel in the Pakistani city of Quetta, where the Chinese ambassador has been staying. At least 11 others were hurt. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Design. Great interpreter of Beethoven. As well. Oh, so shy, quiet and retiring doggy council co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults. This is not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decipher what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to 